Ephesians 1, 15-23 For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great mind, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. But he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you all bow your head? Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for everything you have given to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and his sacrifice that gives us the opportunity to be close to you, Lord. Thank you for your grace, love, and mercy. I pray over Brian's words tonight as he speaks your truth to us tonight. In our hearts as we listen. Amen. All right. Hey, welcome to RUF again, uh, especially if this is your first time. Uh, we are really glad you're here. So here's my question for you tonight. What do you really think that you need? Honestly. Like, what is most needed in your life based on where you are? Because some of you probably think uh, clarity about my future, if you're a senior. Uh, some of you may think I just need a friend. Others of you may say I need a different family or I need some destructive patterns in my life to stop. What is it that you're convinced that this needs to change about or in my life? Because we're studying the book of Ephesians together this semester. And it's interesting if you remember this. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter of Ephesians while imprisoned in Rome which will lead to his execution, to a group of Christians in the church at Ephesus. And here's what's going on in Ephesus. You can read about this in Acts 19. Ephesus is probably the fourth largest city, I think, at the time. As Christians are, are, are coming about, being converted, there's a riot that happens. They all get drugged into this kind of coliseum and they start screaming, uh, great is Artemis, which was their God, and they are ready to kill them. But the Roman government stops it, says there needs to be peace. That is the situation of the church in Ephesus, which means people are dying. Uh, People's circumstances are really bad because they're a follower of Jesus. And Paul, at the end of Ephesians 1, prays for these people. And says, this is what you need. This is what you most need. And I think if Paul answers the question of what the Ephesians need in that situation, it's probably what you and I need even in 2018, no matter what our life looks like. And this great passage, here's the headings we're going to look at. That the things that he says that we need is knowledge, hope, inheritance, and power. Okay? Knowledge, hope, inheritance, power. Betsy did a fantastic job reading the scripture, so let's look at it. First thing that he says that we actually need, verse 17, is knowledge. So he's writing to this group of Christians whose life 
by all accounts looks terrible. People despise them and are persecuting. They're on the, they're on the you know, bottom of the barrel socially. What he prays is that God the Father may give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Be honest. That kind of makes you go, really, Paul? Now, we're going to talk about like the knowledge of God when people are dying, when people are uh, in pretty dark circumstances, going hungry or whatever. You want them to know God better and more deeply. That just sounds Christian. It kind of... It kind of sounds, sounds silly and impractical. But here's what I ask you to consider. I, I think by college, most of you have started some sort of reflection on your past. And I think most of us would look back at our life at different stages and admit that there were things that I used to think were a pressing issue in my life. But as I've gotten older, as I've matured, I've realized I don't, that wasn't as big of a deal as I thought. Uh, right now in the Sorkin Fry house, Clark is my five-year-old. A pressing issue in him uh, that sometimes makes him collapse in despair, literally crying, is that he's not the fastest boy in his grade. Thomas is faster than Clark. It, and it just destroys him. Like, he cries about it. And there's no explaining to him that it's not that big of a deal. Because it is. I just, I'm pretty convinced that when he's 25, he's just not going to care that, he's the, that he wasn't the fastest kid anymore. But it's what he thinks is pressing now. But then what? You get to junior high, high school, what becomes the pressing need? I've got to make the uh, baseball team. I've got to get a part in this play. I need this uh, acne to go away. I need, uh, I need uh, her to like me. And that's what is the central pressing need. And now what is it? Some of that stuff is still rummaging around. But now you're, it's like, I just I need to know who to be connected with. What job am I going to get out of college? And don't you think 10 years from now, you'll look back at those things and be like, oh, that wasn't as big of a deal as I thought. Now look, those things aren't unimportant. They actually, they are. My point is, is that a per, as a person matures and grows, that person usually looks back on former things that he thought was my greatest need and says, oh, that wasn't as important as I thought. Well, if that's true just physically, could it not be also true holistically that maturing spiritually means that you more and more see that the knowledge of God is actually the ultimate need in your life? They used to not think it was that big of a deal. Now I realize it's the foundational need behind everything else. And Paul really is saying that unless the knowledge of God is the most foundational need uh, behind everything else, you started in the wrong place. So if you find yourself tonight riddled by anxiety, Without making anxiety simplistic, medicine, things like that are good. But at some level, the most important thing that you need to know is not exactly how I can get my life under control or know where I stand with a certain group or have my future life figured out. The most important thing Paul would say is this. You need to know God. You need to know His sovereign care. That He's in control of all things and He deeply loves you. That there is one person who is not wringing his hands in anxiety, wondering what's going to happen with you. And it's Jesus. 
That's at some level what you need to know. If you're surprised at how out of control maybe the lust is in your life, that sexually there's things that you've done that you thought you'd never do, the most important thing is not to get things under control and build better accountability. All that stuff is good. Paul would say the most important thing is you actually need to know God. You need to know His intimate love for you. That He knows you to your core. And He deeply loves you because that's what you're looking for in those things. So Paul is saying that fundamentally the point of life is to know God. And to know Him as He is. Not how we imagine Him to be. Not how we wish that He was. But as He is. Because he is reality itself. And to get to know him as he's revealed in the word and revealed in Jesus Christ, that that is foundational. So first he says, knowledge. Second of all, verse 18, he says we need to know hope, right? He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Think about the language that's being used here. He's saying that I want you to see with your heart. So by definition, you seeing something is actually you just coming to grips with something that you you used to not realize was true or realize was there, but actually is. So if this room was dark and I started walking on stage, I'd run into a microphone and a speaker, not because those things weren't there or those things popped out of nowhere. I just couldn't see them. When the light comes on, now I can, now I'm aware, now I can walk this stage without, without stumbling. Paul is saying there's a knowledge of the heart, and the heart is simply your deepest trust and desires. It's what makes you you. He says there's a knowledge of the heart that you need to see that is absolutely true, that's absolutely a fact. You just aren't aware of it. And it's this hope that he's called you to. And hope, it's the engine of life. It really is. What you believe about your future dictates how you live now. You will live according to what your future, uh, to what you think your future is. I heard about this book where there was a guy who went back and, and basically interviewed and studied all these cases in uh, Nazi prison camps back in World War II. And he tried to figure out, the answer to this question, what made some people endure and other people finally give out? Because he found out it didn't matter really age. It didn't matter um, uh, wealth. It didn't matter family connections. All, what seemed to matter is if you had hope. That what kept people going in a death camp was hope. If hope was gone, people died. He literally found, about, found out about this case. Who There was a guy who said that he had a vision from God that World War II was going to end on March 29th. And he started telling everybody. He knew that was to be true. And so he was thriving in this camp. He kept working. He kept waking up. And it's horrible circumstances. The closer that it got to March 30th, the more and more he he got in despair. And this is what happened. On March 29th, he got a fever. On March 30th, he goes unconscious. And on March 31st, he died. Literally, his body shut down when there was no hope. And Paul is saying that we aren't fully aware. We aren't seeing reality if we ground our hope in anything that is actually temporary. 
temporary. If your hope is grounded in something temporal, you will be filled with anxiety. If your hope, because it can be threatened. If your hope is in your productivity, you just know at a deep level it can be threatened and you're not secure. If your hope is in being wanted by the right people, that can be threatened. It's not ultimately secure and you know that. If it's in beauty, if it's in money, if it's in making an impact, those things will motivate you. It's the engine of your life. That hope will drive you. But by definition, it's temporary. And eventually, you'll either just have to find something else or you will despair. And Paul is saying, for the Christian, there is a hope. Of course we can feel hopeless. That's what Paul is saying, that you need to know this hope. But Paul is saying, that hopelessness is not reality. And what you need to see is what's true. And that hope, according to Romans 8, is there's a suffering of this present time that's not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes and what he sees. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Right? There's this unseen hope. What is it? Reality itself. That one day, God through Jesus will bring everything to completion. All of creation will be healed. Every bit of sorrow will end. All of shame removed. All of sin removed. Everything dirty will be made clean. Everything broken healed forever. Salvation in its fullest sense because of Jesus, that is the Christian's hope. And it's actually yours if you've trusted Him. And it's secure and nothing can touch it. And that means this. I really want you to hear this. You really might fail in some major areas in your life. You might fail in marriage one day. You might fail in school. You might fail in fill in the blank. But, but Paul is saying this. You will not fail in the end. You won't. Let that heal you. Jesus has secured your hope. Let that change you. And so he talks about knowledge, he talks about hope, and then he talks about inheritance. It's also verse 18. He says, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, at first glance, as you read inheritance, if you're like me, I think that, that kind of refers to the hope, right, of, of people that are, that are Christians. This new heavens, new earth, everything made right. But look at the language again. It says that Paul wants us to know the riches of his, God's inheritance. That God has an inheritance. That's strange. Because what's an inheritance? An inheritance is by definition something of tremendous value that's coming your way that makes you look forward to it, that brings you real joy, right? And this says that we need to know that God has an inheritance. That God is looking forward to something coming His way that makes Him feel rich. What in the world is God's inheritance? Are you ready? It's you. Right? The Old Testament actually gives hints at this. Like Deuteronomy 7, he looks at Israel, his people in the Old Testament and says, You are my treasured possession. Language of inheritance, right? You make him feel rich. I think that's hard to believe. I, was, uh, I watched this video actually today. Uh, uh, this is, I think there's a show about 10 years ago, actually, had Howie Mandel on it. Um, and there was something that was set up 
for this uh, woman who had no idea what was going on. She thought she was going out to dinner uh, with just one of her friends in L.A., normal dinner. And about halfway through the dinner, the waiter starts dancing. And then the rest of the restaurant starts dancing. And she's saying, what, you know, what in the world is going on? It'd actually be, anyway, it actually was a little freaky until you figured out what's going on. Then one of the waiter picks her up. At this point, I think I would have gotten scared. Carries her into an elevator. She does start freaking out, saying, what is happening to me? As the elevator opens up, there are literally, I bet it's 150 people that do this flash mob. That start dancing all around her. They start singing this choreographed tune. And, the, and, and it starts partying. And she says, what in the world is going on? And at the end of the part, there's this man standing with a guitar and her face drops as he begins to sing. Because what she realizes is this is this guy that for two years she's been having this conversation with through the internet and over the phone that they started getting to know each other and they started becoming best friends. But she's actually never met him. Right, and as he starts singing this cheesy love song toward, you know, to her, he asked her these questions. She said, yes, I'd love for you to date me, all this kind of stuff. And then they have an interview. And here's what she says. She says, honestly, it's just crazy. Because I never thought that anybody in the whole world would ever care about me enough to do something like that. That's how we all feel. I can't believe anybody in the world would think that I'm his treasure. But God does. It's just, it's just hard to believe because the world beats us up. There's real evil in this world. Some of you have been treated horribly and abused. And it's awful. And it makes you feel worthless. And it's not your fault. But that is not your value. Your value does not come from what has been done to you. Your value does not come from what other people think of you. Your value does not come from what a boy said about you or how much, uh, how much you have succeeded or failed. Your value comes from what the Lord of this universe thinks about you. And Paul just says it's true. You're his inheritance. And you just need to see it. And that needs to become the operative control center of your life. He says there's knowledge, there's hope, there's inheritance. And then he says power. Right, verse 19, he says, You also need to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. That's a lot of superlatives. (laughs) And what Paul must assume is that there's a lot of times in your life that you will feel weak, powerless, and incompetent. And actually that's true in and of ourselves. We are incompetent, we are weak, and we're really sinful. But Paul says, here's what you need to see. There's actually a power that is at work in and through you. It's real. The lights need to turn on. You need to see it. And it's the same power, this is what's amazing, that resurrected Jesus from the dead and placed him in the heavenlies. Talking about his ascension. And the ascension was to show you that Jesus is king of this whole world on a throne with everything under his feet. And so what Paul is saying is this. Look, all of us, we know that there are two things that we simply cannot avoid and cannot control. You know what they are? Death and evil. 
We all know this is true. I cannot avoid it. The American, the American economy has devoted billions of dollars to extending the quantity and quality of life. But we, can't, we have not stopped doing We can't do it. And all of us, to some extent, if you're honest, we have evil within us. I hurt people. I do things I wish that I hadn't done. I'm more broken and sinful than I think. No one has ever beaten death and no one has ever beaten evil. And Paul is saying, actually, that's not true. There's one person who beat death and beat evil. And it was, it was the God-man, Jesus, who took on flesh. Because he lived a perfect, sinless life, never giving in to evil, withstanding every temptation. But then he went to a cross and was condemned as a sinner, though he never sinned. Taking upon his perfect life the power and penalty of sin and evil. And life itself really died. His heart really stops beating. He really goes into the grave. But three days later, he's resurrected and pushes back death. And now is seated in authority above all power, all sin, all darkness. And that one man who defeated death and defeated uh, sin, here's what Paul says. You're united to him by simple faith. And his work becomes your work. And that power that, 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 that was at work in Jesus is now at work in you. Because what Paul knows is this. That when you look at yourself against death, when you look at yourself against, against stuff that you just wish would go away in your heart and it just doesn't, the feeling is this. There's no way I can win. There's just no way. I really am a product of, of failure. And Paul says, that's not reality. Christianity is not just these rules or abstract theology. It's a power. Because Jesus gives you himself. And Jesus has already won. He says, lean into that. And keep repenting. Keep confessing. Keep being honest about your sin. He's at work. And that's what I would ask you. What are the things that because they're hidden or because they've been there for so long, you feel defeated? Because the first lie that has to be dispelled is that there's no way that will ever change. Is it the addiction to pornography? Is it your same-sex struggles? Is it your addiction to people's approval, your fear of the future? The lie is that this will never get any better. And Paul says, no, there's a power that brought Jesus out of the grave. Bring it to Jesus, and here you go, probably bring it to other people. And bring it out of darkness. And believe that he's at work. That's reality. I am not. If you kept coming to RUF, you will definitely hit it. I'm not holding forth some victorious Christian life. That if you just get it together enough, you'll no longer struggle with sin. Far from it. When you meet Jesus, you start understanding how messy your life really is. But there's hope. Because there's power at work in you. So I want you to consider those things. That what Paul is saying is that what you most need and what I need is not a change in circumstances. It's not even a new thing. It's simply to become aware of and live what is in light of what is already true of you if you've trusted Christ. Which means it works like Harry Potter. Right? 
Think about the scene, the op- I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. The opening, almost the opening scene of Harry Potter. <coughs> Harry is an orphan who's living under the cruel rule of the Dursleys in a cupboard under a staircase. He has no idea who he is. And all of a sudden, that half-giant, half-man, Hagrid, comes to hunt him down because it's his birthday. And it's time for him to come to Hogwarts. But his aunt and uncle, they've shielded him. They've actually taken him to some, some house out in the lake. And Hagrid busts down the door. And Harry's terrified. He has no idea who this giant man is. And Hagrid, you know, says, Hello, Harry. Haven't seen you since you were a baby. Harry says, do, you know, do, 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 I, do I know you? He said, I'm here to take you to Hogwarts. He says, Hogwarts? He says, have you never heard of Hogwarts? He says, no, I've never heard of Hogwarts. And he says, Harry, you're a wizard. You're a great wizard. <laughs> and he says, no, I'm not. <laughs> he says, your parents were great. And he said, my parents died in a car wreck. And Hagrid goes... They told you your parents died in a car wreck? And what Hagrid starts getting so angry at is this. Harry has no idea who he is. He's a great wizard who's a product of of parents who were awesome and sacrificed everything for him. And the rest of the... the, Here's the rest of the novels. Harry becoming aware of who he really is. That's who you are, Harry. You've got to see it. And Paul is saying the Christian life is you become who you really are. Who God has declared you to be. And it begins to change you. How does that happen? This is how I'll end. In this place. Look at verse 22 through 23. Paul ends his prayer with this statement. All things are under his feet and everything has been given to Jesus as head of what? The church. His people. His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's confusing grammar, but here's the astounding statement. Jesus is using all his power, all his resources for one thing. The sake of his church. The sake of restoring and building up and making beautiful his bride, the church. So if you don't know where to know God and to become more and more aware of of, what he's di- of who he is and what he's done for you? Paul says, you need the church. I don't know if you've read about uh, the, this I Promise school that uh, LeBron James has started. Uh, LeBron James, if you're unaware of, I guess, the world's greatest sports icon right now, he's a basketball player for the Cavaliers. He, uh, he started a school called the I Promise school. I'm sorry, not for the Cavaliers. He's now with the Lakers. Um, I know, I keep up with my sports. Um, he started a school called I Promise in, uh, in Akron, where he grew up. And it is for, basically open this year, fourth and fifth graders, I believe, for 250 students who are struggling and failing out of school and come from uh, very, usually uh, poor situations. Here's what the school provides. A few things. <laughs> it provides not only every resource you can imagine for the student. It provides every resource you can imagine for teachers. They have, like, personal trainers things that equip them to teach and to empower their curriculum. There's resources for the parents, like food and nutrition and helping them be involved in the life of the student. There's a guaranteed tuition for anybody that graduates that school from a four-year university. Here's what I'm trying to get across. I don't know much about education. 
My guess is this. There are going to be some students' lives that are massively changed because they go to that school. That's just my doubt. You know why? Because LeBron James is pouring all of his $440 million uh, net worth of resources into that. All of his connections, all of his passion into that school. My bet is it's not going to fail. And see, what Jesus is saying here is if you want to grow in the knowledge of God, you've got to be in the place where he has said, I'm going to pour all of my resources, all of my riches, all of my stuff into here. And you know where it is? The church. The weird, weak, seeming foreign thing called the church. Yes, that's where Jesus promises to pour all of his resources. Which means, on the one hand, in college... The church extended in some ways is called RUF, or else it sounds self-serving. <laughs> but this is the church sent to campus. And for most of your ordinary life, it'll be because you're involved in this thing called the local church. Because it's there through these weird things, these weak things like the preaching of the word and prayer and fellowship and community. You actually begin to see and know who Jesus is. There is just no picture of a healthy Christian apart from the church. Because you need real people around you to help you experience what is true. You don't feel like you matter in God's eyes? You need people around you that help you feel like you matter. You don't believe Jesus' forgiveness is real? You probably haven't experienced real forgiveness from other people. And it's experienced in the church. Here's my question. Do those things sound interesting to you? If that makes you curious, I don't know, keep coming. Keep coming to the place that Jesus promises to be. And see if that, it might not change your circumstances. But he says it will change you. Let that be an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.